Hello, everybody, and welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoot, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Welcome back to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. We're here with social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor Natalie Graves from Chicago, Illinois, and retired North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr, and former University of Southern California football player and filmmaker Bob DeMars. We are going deep on sports justice. Bob DeMars, you're from Southern California and you go to USC. It had to be a dream come true in many ways. When did you start to realize that things aren't quite as great as they seem? Um, There was a couple of cracks actually first semester when they told me that I couldn't be in the film school because the classes conflicted uh, with the football schedule. And Mm. that's when I first really got the hint that I'm really more of an athlete student than a student athlete. And um, when I committed to USC, it was actually before my senior year in high school. And John Robinson, they just won the Rose Bowl in 96. John Robinson, my coach, had just signed a five-year contract extension. He was going to be there the whole time I'm there. Everything's perfect and amazing. And then three months into my freshman year, he was fired along with everybody in the coaching staff that loved me. And so in came Coach Robinson was a great guy. Coach Robinson, man, he was a guy that, you know, he had an open-door policy. You know, he would, you know, yeah, hey, Bobby, come over here. (laughs) And he'd, he'd... shake your hand and he'd have ten dollars in his hand and he'd be like you're looking hungry go get something to eat and then he'd pull you in close and he'd go and bring me back a chicken sandwich <laughs> and of course the chicken sandwich was eleven dollars so it was like it cost me money you know uh but at the end of the day he was this great father figure that you loved and and he, and he was a true leader of men and then comes in paul hackett and paul hackett um, didn't have an open door policy. You had to set an appointment. Um, they asked me to set an appointment with them. I waited two hours. They rescheduled. Mm-hmm. I set another appointment. I waited two hours. They rescheduled. Mm-hmm. And then I get called in, and uh, they had just moved me from linebacker to defensive line and tried to move me to O-line. So there was just a lot of fluctuation where they were trying to move me around. And this is right at the start of my second semester of my freshman year. And he says, so I hear you're transferring. And, you know, I'm just blown away because I had never that thought had never crossed my mind. Um, you know, I chose USC over Stanford and Harvard. You know, I actually created a matrix to figure out what school I wanted to go to, and it came down to the business school, the film school, and the football program ultimately outweighed what I wanted to get out of a university and obviously the value of my degree in LA. Um, so that thought had never crossed my mind. And he said, "Well, I'm going to let you know that if you're going to transfer, now would be the time to do it because you're not going to play for me." And I'm I'm just blown away, and I was not the only guy that he told this to. There were seven other guys that eventually um, either transferred or um, medical redshirted. 
um, because he would just push you to beyond your limit, you know. So I then became expendable, and, you know, over the next three years, you know, we'd have scrimmages. I'd go 70 plays in a row. Um, like 20 plays is like an NFL record. Um, you know, so I was the only guy that knew all the positions, so they would just throw me around. I was basically used at their will. And it ultimately, it really tore my body up um, just being thought of as somebody that they'd never thought could play. Luckily, you know, I had the redeeming season of Pete Carroll, and I got to start under Pete Carroll, and I played my last year. So I, I got to, you know, play for a great coach again. But in the meantime, Paul Hackett came in, and another guy named Ed Ogeron, who's still coaching, he's uh, he's a coach at uh, LSU now. And, um, you know, there's some people out there that love him. I think he's, you know, a terrible person. <laughs> I was around him for four yeah. years with the lights off. And uh, I won't say all the dark things that happened because I keep some of those aces up my sleeve. Um, but, you know, he was the guy that would cuss me out when I had to leave practice early in spring football to go to a business class. A business class where if you were late once, you dropped the whole grade. So if you had an A in the class, for, for then you end up with a B. Okay, I would literally be running to class without showering, drenched in sweat. Um, and meanwhile, be you know, get cussed out every single day um, by Ed Ogeron. And, um, you know, he came back and he won a game and at SC and people wanted to love him. Um, but that's because fans don't know what he's like behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I saw the dark side of coaching um, in that position coach. And, um, you know, it really made me hate the sport in that period. Yeah, it sounds like the luster wore off pretty quick. Oh, man. Well, and it's <laughs> tough because when you're there, you know, everybody, you know, you know, we open up the film with coming out of the tunnel because that's what everybody imagines what they want to do. They want to have that feeling of running out of the tunnel and all the fans and, and just that experience that you get to do, you know, uh, a few dozen times in your career. Um, but the reality is, is all the stuff that happens beyond that scene is a stark contrast to those mm -hmm. moments. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you've got your friends and your family and everybody's dreams are on your shoulders and you don't want to let anyone down. And it's a lot of pressure um, mm -hmm. for athletes, especially when they were the best in their high school, and then they mm -hmm. go to a place where all of a sudden they're not loved anymore. Yeah. Natalie, I see you shaking your head. Yeah, I'm just, just listening to – how old were you uh, when you were a freshman? I was 18, so I okay, – I, yeah, I was 18 when he said that to me. So so we're, we're talking about an 18-year-old who is already experiencing a loss because his coach is now gone. And his identity is tied into his position, which changed. So, so there's another change that has happened. And then the message that you received from the coaches, two-hour two wait, mm -hmm. that a meeting was rescheduled. So you're getting these messages internally, what this means. And then to have this negative comments and, and to be told to transfer and all of that. For an 18-year-old, and there's no support, mm -hmm. there's no one there helping you to navigate through this thing that you're going through with this closed, protected system, this hierarchy system with the coach is up here and you're way down here as a player, and there's no advocates for them. There, there's mm -hmm. there's yeah. nothing there. And, and when I hear these stories, it just... <clears throat> It's heartbreaking. It, it is. It's really troubling, and, and it doesn't have to be this way. There could be someone that he can go to, that 18-year-old, to go to and say, you know, I, I need to figure this out. I'm, I'm having these feelings. I'm going through things. Mm -hmm. And we also know at college age, a lot of times mental illness presents itself. So, mm -hmm. you, could, you know, you, know you, you said you experienced panic attacks and anxiety, things like that. And so all of these things are playing 
mm-hmm. with him while he's experiencing these tough life challenging situations at 18. Right. In an environment that he thought was going to be supportive, but and then safe. was not. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And I didn't I didn't have panic attacks until I was 33, but um, I definitely felt, you know, depression. And there was all these issues sure. with, with, like, as you were saying, the identity. And mm-hmm. I think the closest to support that you had out there, there were some Bible study groups. And okay. the interesting thing about Bible study groups was you actually had a lot of people in there that, that weren't really religious. And they were looking for just an outpouring of support. Yes. And, and, you know, and also just, you know, for the listeners, you know, the coaches, um, you know, Coach Hackett didn't do that because he's like the mean, he's not like the Grinch that stole football. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's, I mean, he, he kind of is. But but the reason that he does that is if you can get a player to leave on their own volition yeah. or to medical redshirt, then they get another scholarship representative of them. Whereas if I were to have success, there would have been a certain amount of politics that mm-hmm. would have been attributed to John Robinson, the coach that recruited me. And I didn't understand that at the time. Absolutely. Right. And That's again, just... throw that into the equation right. that Natalie just spelled out there. You throw in the politics that, as Bob Orr said earlier, an 18-year-old kid isn't going to get all that no. stuff. I'm, I'm 47, and I still am trying to sort it all out. So, yeah, it sounds like pretty early on there was some, you know, kind of heavy thuds that you felt. Um, Bob, I'm going to kind of ask you the opposite question. We've already heard kind of when the luster wore off for you with, with your experience with Devin Ramsey. Can you talk a little bit about how you're still – are you still able to enjoy – um sports i mean i know you're set to watch the carolina basketball game tonight um hopefully you'll let me yeah i I will allow it i will allow it but what is it hard to watch sports now it certainly has changed my perspective dramatically and as i've told my oldest son who's a unc undergrad uh graduate and huge fan i'm interested but i don't care anymore Hmm. um you know, a friend of mine invited me to the Duke Carolina basketball game uh, a few weeks back, and you know it was exciting. I was interested. Carolina blew it in the last minute, and it just didn't bother me like it would have before. And and I hear more and more fans talk about how the education process that's going on, what they've learned about the academics, the concussions the system, uh, and they're seeing all this, you know, billions of dollars being made, and and it really is changing, I think, the attitudes of, of, of a lot of sports fans, but the question in my script, Marsha, that I do want to respond to just briefly about, um, you know, yes, Devin sort of set me on the path of becoming a, a, a reform advocate. But Mike McAdoo was this mm-hmm. other player at Carolina who, uh, whose case was parallel to Devin's. But I did not represent Mike. And Mike was certainly a struggling student. And he was charged with getting too much help from a tutor on, on a paper and ultimately was suspended for a semester. And the university tried to help him uh, in the NCAA context by uh, saying that he shouldn't be permanently declared ineligible. But the NCAA said, nope, nope, he can never play again. And so he, at that point in time, came to me. I couldn't handle his suit, but I did help him find a lawyer. So he sues, 
UNC and the NCAA. And I've never seen such a circling of the wagons, such uh, a demonstration of we're going to pour all the money and resources that the NCAA has, that UNC has, and we're going to crush you. And even though he had a good legal team, he was totally unsuccessful. And then we find out after the fact, although I would contend that UNC and the NCAA knew the class that he was charged with uh, violating the NCAA rules was a fraudulent class that had been set up in which the in, there was no instructor mm-hmm. they like never met negative. and yeah. the actual <laughs> yeah. the the actual person who taught the class or was supposed to teach the class had his name forged on the grade roll and yet no one's ever at the university level or the NCAA level has ever stepped up and said you know, we really did a micro mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think that experience really soured me on on, on the whole process. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and African-American studies was, you know, the choice of major of these guys, and they didn't even know that it was their major. And the school failed to see the irony of forcing kids into a class that's about oppression and overcoming oppression and then not teaching them that subject. Okay. Well, so yeah, we UNC specializes in white supremacy culture. That's what's going on there. Let Let me ask you this, Bob Demarsh, because I think it's worth noting you went to Southern Cal, assuming you could go to film school. Right. So you made this decision, this matrix, and and I love John Robinson. I know him as well and think he's great. You were under the assumption I'm allowed to go to film school. It wasn't until you got there that you realized, nuts, I can't go to film school. So an education or getting a degree is not the same thing as having an access to a full education. Well, and the same thing happened to Michael McAdoo. Oh, sure. He wanted to be a criminal justice major. He was told that he could, and then he got to school, and they said, you can't do that because it conflicts with practice. Well, well, the the coach who recruited him said, oh, we have the best criminal justice program uh, in the country, and we didn't even have a major in criminal justice. So, yeah, you know, so... With 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 the um, with USC, I would say to their credit, um, I got into the business school as a as a freshman, so I was a business scholar, um, and I wasn't aware of that program without uh, the academic department at, um, in the athletic department. But the flip side of that was that they said, "Oh, you can't do you know cinema. All the classes are from like two to six on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's when football is both semesters." Uh, so what I did was I applied without telling them. And then I found a way to structure my schedule so that I could put the um, core classes that you're supposed mm-hmm. to take first last. So I took Cinema 101 last, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. doesn't make sense, but, you yeah. know, it served the purpose that I needed to. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, from an academic, a- academic standpoint that um, athletes have a certain amount of privilege because they can pick their classes first. But that's because that has to fit into their football, mm-hmm. you know, program. Right. You know, Very limited. One of the solutions some college teams are doing is practicing at 6 a.m. in the morning. I don't know of a class other than maybe ROTC that's meeting <laughs> at 6 a.m. in the morning and it's freeing uh, players up. It's some of the smaller schools that may not have as broad the breadth of class scheduling that some of the larger schools have. You're um, at 5 in the morning now. 
you know, or if you miss a class or something. Oh, yeah, you, you get the punishment. USC, they, they wanted me to run at 5 in the morning because I didn't go to a tutoring session. And I was in the top 5% academically of the accepted class into USC that year. And so essentially I was going to be forced to have a tutor that wasn't academically <laughs> at my level. So I said, look, I'll tell you what, if I drop below 3.0 at any point, you can force me to have a tutor, but until that happens, and then they they actually backed off of me with that. I'm like, I'm mm -hmm. not running at five in the morning. I'm barely sleeping right now. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> good for you. Good Probably for you. took some courage <laughs> to say yeah. that. Well, I was upset. I was like, yeah. I don't have the time to sit around here and get tutored in a class that I already yep. have an A in. Yeah. Like, what's the problem? Yeah. Natalie, let me ask you this: in your work, you're pretty much always working with people that have problems and challenges. Is it hard to see what's redemptive about sports from your perspective? And have there been turning points for you? You know, I've, I've actually reflected on this um, a lot. When I, um, like, prepare for conferences and workshops, I'm always highlighting the negatives of sport mm. and the challenges and, and talking about um, athletes as what we call um, in social work a vulnerable population and how they um, have these very unique um, circumstances that make them um, vulnerable to just just a ton of things as it relates to um, wellness and and taking care of themselves and all these kind of range of issues and I do struggle sometimes to remember the good things that sports has to offer um, I guess I kind of focus on the individual more so and looking from a strength perspective and, and trying to build from that. I, I know that, that sports and, and these programs are, are, there's a ton of positive things that are going on. But it, it, it becomes a kind of a, um, a challenge to when you're seeing these individual lives and how they're really struggling. You know, when I think about um, a young lady I was working with who has been an ice skater since four years old, and she's now a sophomore trying to become get into nationals and doesn't want to skate anymore. Mm. Um, the challenges with that, or if I work with a retired NFL player and has no identity be after sport. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so it, it just really kind of makes me go back to um, going to a more macro perspective and mm. trying to look at things from a preventative perspective. And, you know, some of the work, you know, I, I created the organization, the One in Four Project, and we're a group of um, social workers who are really working to educate, remove stigma um, in the sports community. And um, what we want to do is educate coaches, teams, organizations, um, the athletes themselves, people who love the athletes on some of these things and really try to work on them. And, you know, from my perspective, my view, it's, there's not enough conversation when it, when it comes to um, managing mental health, talking about mental illness. And so, you know, one of the things that um, the organization is working on is um, I had an opportunity to um, get retired NFL and NBA players in Chicago to agree to um, some surveys and some questionnaires and some interviews. And what we're going to do is try to take that data from 
um, folks who are experienced, they've gone through it, they, they um, know what should have happened, what they wanted to see happen, and take that information and create programming for student athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's kind of my way of trying to do something, sure. put that positivity and address some needs for a population that so desperately needs it. Yeah, I think former players are such a great resource because I think it's somebody that current players will listen to. Absolutely, you know? um, yeah. And I think that's one of the the really potent things about your film, Bob, is that it's from a player's perspective. And, you know, I, I kind of like you, Natalie, sometimes I struggle to remember, like, what was life-giving about this? You know, mm-hmm. what? And I, I, I tend to <clears throat> wonder sometimes if sport can't be sport when it becomes a revenue-producing situation. And, you know, it's kind of an open question, um, and it kind of connects to where I know John wants to make sure we get to talk to you, Judge Orr, um, on the name, image, and likeness issue. Well, the question I have, Bob, specifically, is what's at stake for a university if a player makes money off their own likeness? Well, frankly... I don't think anything is seriously at stake in the compensation issue. And uh, Bob DeMars said earlier that that in the range of issues, the compensation issue was really at the bottom. And frankly, I think the NCAA wants you to talk about paying players Mm -hmm. because the public has a certain resistance to that. So if that's the issue, the NCAA wins. I think it has everything to do with control. They, you know, you keep the players poor, you keep the players powerless, they can't have agents, they can't have Mm. representatives. There is no practical advocacy organization to protect their interest. Uh, And, you know, it's all part of the, the university and the NCAA having control over the product. And... Uh, frankly, if, if the players could earn some money from their likeness or by signing jerseys or whatever, um, it's not going to hurt the universities in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you look at the I, I, I was you look at the basketball jerseys and the the commercial logos uh, on them, and yet the, the students are supposed to be protected from commercialism. And yet that's maybe the single biggest hypocritical rule in the NCAA uh, 400-page rule book because everything's about commercial exploitation and making sure that the players, the people who are actually earning the money, get as little as possible from it. The NCAA was founded for the purpose of preventing commercial exploitation. That's one of their founding purposes. But what they really mean is to prevent others from exploiting the talent that they're commercially exploiting. And the fans, at the end of the day, when you talk about the money and should players be paid, that's really the topic of discussion it always turns to. When we did a Kickstarter campaign, Matt Barkley, uh, quarterback for the Eagles and former USC football mm-hmm. player, he tweeted out, he said, do you think athletes deserve more rights? This documentary does. 
And what came out of that was actually enough press that allowed us to raise the money. So I have a lot of, <laughs> I'm very thankful for Matt Barkley, but he took a lot of heat because every article that came up said, ah, Matt Barkley thinks players should be paid. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the public wants to believe in this myth and this fairy tale of purism that the NCAA likes to create. And I remember I was at Disneyland when I was a kid and one of the, you know, actors went into the back thing and the door opened up just wide enough to see Tinkerbell smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think it's a nice metaphor for what's really happening. And it's like, you know, you kind of go, oh my God, yeah, that's man. not really, you know, <laughs> like her dress wasn't zipped up all the way. And there yeah. was like, her hair was a little off to the side. I don't know, she maybe, you know, but... <laughs> That's a, it's a great example because when you look at the NCAA, we want to believe that amateurism and, you know, this is better than, than professional sports because these guys, these guys aren't being paid. But really, what are we at risk of losing here? Um, you know, the Olympic system was built upon that same ideology that if we do this, then we're going to lose the value that the Olympics have. But the money got so big and it became so embarrassing um, and, and American athletes didn't have the resources that other univer- that other right. uh, uh, countries had um, that they started opening up the door to that. And I think, you know, the argument that a lot of people then say to that is they say, well, you know what? Well, the quarterback's going to make more than the offensive line. Capitalism is a very American concept, mm-hmm. okay? But what they fail to understand is mm. the women's basketball team is going to get a deal with the local car dealership, okay? Mm-hmm. It's going to present opportunities to everybody. And, you know, when is it against American tradition to get your fair market value? And, you know, when it comes to playing, paying players, I think that if players were able to trade on their likeness and their value in college, which for them, for some of them is very short, and that's the only time that they actually have their greatest value is when they're in college because they don't always pan out athletically. Um, if you look at Brian Bosworth or some of the Heisman winners that never even played in the pros, mm-hmm. they had that value in that short period of time, and they could have traded on that value, and they could have you know, made money that would have you know, helped pay for their medical expenses down the road. And otherwise, you end up with athletes that don't have education, they don't have money, and then it becomes a public bad, and these people show up at the emergency room later on, and the taxpayer absorbs all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, trying to change public perception on athletes creating money off of their likeness. Ed O'Bannon's in the film, um, and he, you know, set a, you know, um, uh, a precedent, which is still going back and forth on appeals, um, that they couldn't use their likeness. But what a lot of people don't realize is it was because they used Ed O'Bannon's likeness after he had finished playing. Okay, um, they, they were obviously continuing to use football players when they were playing. I was in a video game. Um, I had to put myself in the game uh, in order to actually play in the video game. And, uh, you know, I was one year off from being a part of the class action lawsuit. And part of me was wondering, do I have to admit I have an agility of 16 out of 100 in order to receive that money? Because my guy was terrible. <laughs> but at the end of the day. But you still played him. Oh, I still. Oh, well, I took myself out pretty quick. Actually, I was pretty much. A li- I was a liability to the defense. You're starting to have some empathy with oh, the coaches. I couldn't make it. Oh, all of a sudden, huh? I'm like, oh, this guy's terrible. You should stay in school. I heard you're going to transfer. Yeah. 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 You're going to transfer number ninety-one. Uh, so, but at the end of the day, 
if you look at any of those video games, they were using these guys' likeness. If you watch any, watch March Madness right now, and you will see a Coca-Cola promo where they're using current players that are playing right now, right. and it'll so show some game-winning shot, and then it'll go to the Coca-Cola logo, and <laughs> right. and they're they're trading off of their value in the moment where they have the most value. And why shouldn't players be able to get a part of that? I don't see, you know, if you go to school for music and you go get a recording contract, somebody signs you, mm-hmm. nobody has a problem with that. Let, let me ask you this. In terms of power that the players have, what kind of player would it take to make a change in this? Todd Gurley was a running back at Georgia. He sold his jersey, I think, uh, on the computer and got suspended. So did A.J. Green. So did many players. Yet the running back at LSU, Fortnette, this year for charity, sold his jersey and the NCAA okayed it for $30,000. So what kind of player would it take, the power of the players, to say, no, I'm selling my jersey? Let me ask you this. Would it take a white player? Would it take a white quarterback, someone like Tim Tebow? I think it, I think it needs to be a group of players, and mm-hmm. we saw that in Missouri. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's strength in, in groups, doing it together, not singling one person out. I think, um, you know, where, where Northwestern tried to unionize Mm-hmm. players there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know I, I think that's a better way to go because you know like you say a quarterback you know who's white they still can be singled out they still can be punished when you have the entire team doing something what a statement that mm-hmm. makes and so I, I would like to see something more that way yeah. Johnny Manziel Johnny Manziel yeah I was gonna say Johnny Manziel his, um you know autographs I mean the problem is his character's under question now so there's kind of those issues as well so I think you know when you're looking at somebody like a Tim Tebow um if they were to question you know what his intentions were and in trying to do something well I think it might shift a little bit but I I definitely agree with Natalie that it's going to take a, a group of athletes and if I think what was the Michigan team in the March Madness tournament in 1990, they, mm-hmm. they were, came this close to not coming out on the court. Mm-hmm, and right. that would have completely changed the game mm-hmm. because it would have taken away what everybody loved. And mm-hmm. people would have said, no, we'd rather have that back. It wouldn't change anything. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, um, where I do think this change eventually will come, I don't think it's going to happen nearly as fast as people will, mm-hmm. but I think it eventually will happen. I don't think it's going to take away what people love about no. the school. Mm-hmm. And I think some of these guys should be thousandaires before they're millionaires um, mm-hmm. so that they're not you know, thrown into, they should be taught how to manage their money so mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. thrown into the deep end with all this money and not know what to do with it and not how to manage it. Yeah, but and doesn't I, that also teach society to value this? You know, yes. it's a business, mm-hmm. and and when when you're threatened to take something away, you start to appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. You start, well, maybe we need to look at this thing a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to know, without the players in the final four having to walk off or not show up, what if before the final four, they said we're going to be signing autographed jerseys? Mm-hmm. Uh, here and at ten dollars per signature, um, you know, come on up. Yeah. So, so what's the NCAA going to do, do then? Are right. they going to say, oh, "I'm sorry, all of you are, are, you are all suspended. suspended, ineligible"? Uh, We're going to vacate this. Yeah, win. the walk-ons are going to. Yeah. Uh, They'd ignore it until after the championship um, <laughs> because their ratings and their contracts that they have with CBS are you know it's a 20 billion dollar contract right now the next one's probably going to be 35 and it's only getting bigger and bigger and you know who has the best tickets at these events 
The NCAA, mm -hmm. they're up in their suites. They have the biggest, best, most lavish mm -hmm. parties, mm -hmm. okay? And they're out living up the dream. And meanwhile, you know, March Madness is right in the middle of midterms, okay? So, if, you yeah. know, oh, is this really about academics? No, mm -hmm. of course it's not. That was one of their arguments against a, a college football playoff when they had a you know contract with the BCS. That was one of their red herrings was to say, well, we can't do this because this is right in the middle of finals. And then once that deal got done and they were able to make a bigger, better deal, make more money, they stopped talking about that right. because it was never about that. It's always been about the money with them. Well, I and I think one thing, I think John was <clears throat> pointing toward it and we haven't really gotten into it. And I don't know that we have time to, to do it, give it its due. And that is how race, plays into why this has worked as well as it has. Why it is so easy for a culture, and I mean the American culture, to make the jump from, oh, he's great, to he's a criminal. He needs to be kicked out of school. And that, that we have seen this reiterated over and over again. Black players are the ones that get penalized. Black players are the ones that get accused of academic fraud because you couldn't have written that paper by yourself. And so, to me, the, the power of the players is the, is the linchpin. But it's also, is there space on teams? Because football teams are some of the most cross-cultural, intercultural spaces in our society. Is there space on those teams for dialogue among players? Because what we've seen is players don't talk about this stuff with each other much. And if they could talk about it and create some solidarity like you're talking about, Natalie, and white and black players come together and say, you know what, it sucks worse for you, but you're my teammate, so I'm, on, I'm in. You know, is there how to cultivate space for that discourse. And that's something John and I have tried to do through the years is create space for players to talk to each other come out to our house you know in the meeting room whatever let's talk about what's really going on here let's talk about race let's talk about name image and likeness let's talk about you know just the unionization thing at at um, northwestern which by the way the word was handed down here don't talk about that don't and the players weren't allowed to talk about it to the press or comment on it and coaches weren't supposed to talk about it and so if how to create safe space for dialogue so solidarity and players coming together can actually happen is a huge gulf that that we have continued to see over and over again i don't know what the answer is but i just want to throw that out there as we talk about them coming together in groups the unionizing effort um, was, you know, not only was it an amazing thing historically, um, but this was by a school that had the highest student-athlete graduation rate uh -huh. of any university. Uh, now, King Coulter being a black quarterback, I don't know if that might have swayed that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's interesting when you look at the revenue sports are predominantly African-Americans, mm -hmm. whereas the non-revenue sports, the club sports, okay, yeah. swimming, soccer these are actually really expensive sports to play in yes. growing up in order to be recruited so there's a bit of irony when you have 
um, the athletes that come from nothing that are basically creating all the money. They're bankrolling. They're yeah. bankrolling. The, and these kids generally come from families that can afford the education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's obviously this huge discrepancy in what, you know, one might call an opportunity. Um, and that's why it's like we talked before about, like, socioeconomic levels. Um, there's a reason why people at lower socioeconomic levels aren't academically up to par. They don't have the same resources. They're not learning as much over the summer. By the time they're in high school, they're one or two grade levels behind everybody. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they get to a college um, like North Carolina, which is a public Ivy and one of the top universities in the country. And there's no way to build this guy, these, these guys up into that kind of curriculum. Um, we have former associate chancellor John Cummins in the film. And they did a white paper on the discrepancy between, um, you know, the athletes and the academics at the school. And the next year they came back, the football team was last. They were dead last, the last football team academically out of everybody at Berkeley, okay? Mm -hmm. And so how much do they really care about putting the academics first for these guys? Mm -hmm. And Walter Byers, you know, who wrote a book called Unsportsmanlike Conduct and was the first executive director of the NCAA and has been shunned ever since, called it a plantation mentality. Um, you know, Jonas Sarah's book, Indentured, yep. you know, implied the, the, the whole Branch. idea um, that these are mm-hmm. indentured workers. But the interesting thing about indentured workers, which would happen, you would be, you would come over and you would be brought overseas. They would pay for your, um, you know, ticket to get over here, and you would have to then work for somebody for five years. So it was very similar to what a scholarship was. But if you were a really good worker, you could actually trade on that value, mm-hmm. okay? Whereas that still doesn't exist even mm-hmm. with student athletes. You That's still right. can't trade on your value yeah. um, at any level. And yeah. these guys have tremendous value. The average football player um, is worth, um, I think, one hundred twenty-something thousand dollars, and the average basketball player is worth over a quarter of a million. And some mm-hmm. are bigger programs are worth a um, million dollars mm-hmm. per year, per season, for each right. player. And the average right. scholarship is worth twenty-five thousand dollars. So when you look at that discrepancy in that gap, and you see somebody like Nick Saban, whose contract says ninety percent of his contract is based upon his, you know, his talent fee, and his talent, he doesn't call plays, okay. Kiffin calls those plays, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. He His talent is to bring in valuable players, yeah. so he absorbs all of their value. If you look at Coach K at Duke, who's making over $10 million a year, okay? And if you were to divide that up into scholarships, that would be the equivalent of 400 scholarships. Right. Okay? Well, and One scholarships, let, let's, I, I want to hear what Natalie has to say, too. But scholarships are monopoly money. I mean, they, they, they like to talk about that at Purdue. Well, we pay this much per player. No, you don't. That's how much you want to say you're paying for the player, but that's not real money that you are shelling out of your pocket. You know, Natalie, you had a point. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on when we're talking about race. You know, I really believe that is the unsaid issue when when we're talking about paying athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of having to play black football and basketball players for a sport at a white university, mm-hmm. I think disturbs a lot of people and yes. is very resistant to that. And, and, and we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if, if, if soccer or lacrosse was having this argument, um, I, I, would, I would challenge that. I think the dynamics of what, 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 what it looks like would be quite different. But, but I, I think that when, when we're talking about kind of just staying in your place, Mm-hmm. and doing what you're told mm-hmm. and perform and that's mm-hmm. all you should be doing don't even worry about getting the education just do what you need to do on the field and we heard time and time again at North Carolina when all of these 
players were getting thrown under the bus. They should have just been grateful to be here. Absolutely. They would have never gotten into college without this opportunity. And so they're sitting there reminding them that they don't have value in the academic sense. Yeah. Yeah. So how can you, it's it's a challenge to even try to empower (coughs) yourself when you you should be lucky to be here. Mm -hmm. You, You know, all you are is an athlete. And, yeah. you, you know, I, 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 I talked to someone and uh, he was getting his books from the, the bookstore. And um, the, the clerk said, well, what are you buying books for? You don't need them. You're not going to read them. I mean, so there's a culture on the campus of what these athletes are experiencing. So, you know, one of the things that I really try to I, I like to focus on is really empowering folks because mm-hmm. that's someone on that that uh, Missouri team yeah. thought, you know what, we don't have to accept this and so we can speak out. But who's going to do that? Who's going to shift their mind to say, you know what, we can do this? Mm-hmm. And and in that kind of climate, that that's a tough ask to ask athletes. It really, really is. Well, I think you could do a whole show just based on the issue of race as mm-hmm. well, for sure. And what a what an issue to go deep on. Let's lighten it up a little bit here with the crystal ball shoot around. Okay? So the first person jump in anytime in five years. Let me ask our panelists, in five years will the NCAA still be in operation? If so, what will it look like? And if not, what will have replaced it? Mm. <laughs> I, I'm cynical. Yes, it'll still be around. Uh, they just gave Mark Emmert what a three-year extension, um, uh, so he can buy more Gucci loafers with his multi-million-dollar salary. Um, you know, the Power Five could change that dynamics, but all you'll see is uh, a division where the Power Five conferences have many of the the. Uh, same kind of rules that the NCA has, and, and the NCAA will be dealing with the non-Power Five. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pessimistic about really substantive change. Totally agree. I don't think the NCAA is going anywhere. Um, I think it, they're, they're a brand now, and they're constantly trying to extend that brand and create value in that brand through education, even though they deny that that's their responsibility, okay? <laughs> but they're still trying to extend that brand, and I don't see them going anywhere. I see the schools taking a little bit more of a power rule um, that we're, we're starting to see some schools that are creating four-year scholarship guarantees, um, that are doing um, concussion protocol reform. We've seen the Ivy League cut down on tackling. I think at the end of the day, when those promises are being made in the living rooms, that we're going to have coaches that are going to adjust their recruiting strategy to recruit players based upon offering them more rights because I think the parents mm. are heavily involved in this decision. And I think that that's because when we, when we started this documentary, we created uh, spent nine months actually creating a health plan with one of the top people that create these algorithms. Um, the goal was to get one school to do it. Because if you could get one school to do it, mm-hmm. and the policy would have basically worked as, you know, you would be covered for the next 60 years on the injury you sustain in your sport for that year, okay, for that specific injury. Um, at the end of the day, we couldn't get any company to really adopt the policy because of the ambiguity of the long-term costs of the head injuries. And that's why we're not actually seeing any schools step up to the plate right now mm-hmm. and saying, we need to take responsibility for these injuries. They don't want to say, we're going to pay for this guy's knee surgery, right. even though I know that they do it a lot of the times. My own school does that. 
And I met with them, and one of the main guys, you know, grabbed his knee, and he says, well, you know, I hurt my knee in high school. Does that mean that my high school should play for, pay for my knee? And I said, well, now you're insinuating blame, okay? But it's a night and day difference to know that help is being offered versus having to mm-hmm. ask for help, especially when you're prideful by nature like most athletes are. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see a school taking a big step and forcing other schools to follow suit. But when you have some of the big schools like Alabama that are really dragging their feet the most, I think that's stagnating the process the mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, I think the NCAA is going to always be there, but I think maybe not in five years, but I think small changes are gonna create um, more changes. And mm-hmm. as the public gets more educated, as players become more empowered as you know we start having more of these conversations you know this does create change Mm -hmm. so you know well in five years will it look dramatic dramatically different probably not I mean but I'm optimistic that um things will get better I I just have to be I have to be so we got two pessimists and an optimist (laughs) and I think John and I probably have a little bit of both and that's about that so next crystal balls shoot around whoever wants to take the ball and run with it first the tide is turning which thing do you think might happen first players will be able to benefit financially from their name image and likeness or every school will have an athlete's bill of rights or there will be new helmets and no tackle practices as a mandatory policy in collegiate athletics which will happen first I think we're going to see a little bit of each happening at different levels. I think, you know, when it comes to um, tackling practices, um, tackling in practice and and collisions, we're going to see um, leagues that are going to create rules that are going to make it safer. They're going to change um, concussion protocol and things like that. Uh, As far as an athlete bill of rights, I think that's going to come down to um, really probably state laws. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be a battle at every state. You know, after Northwestern unionized, there were several other states that did preemptive laws mm-hmm. to prevent players from doing that same thing. Um, and they tried you know, to do that in Missouri too. They tried to legislate right. after they mm-hmm. after they um, but, protested. Right. They it, wanted it to didn't take their go. It didn't away. fly. But they said they might try it again. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. surprise me. And there's a lot of influence and manipulation that happens on these players. You know, when the Northwestern players came out and said, we want to form a union, they then went through this appeal process that took a whole year. And essentially, the labor board decided to punt on the issue and said, we're not going to assert jurisdiction over this, which is unfortunate. Um, I think that there is a little bit of a silver lining there because they made the players go back and vote again. Okay. And in that interim, the coaches dragged them into a room and told them that they were going to kill college sports for all the other sports, that they Mm -hmm. were basically going to be sounding the death knell for all these other great things that college sports does, Mm -hmm. which was, which was, you know, complete BS when, you know, there was no basis for that argument, but they scared a lot of these players. And I was worried that if the vote would have come back and they would have held up the appeal and then gone to that vote, 
that the players might have then said no and said, no, you know, we don't want those rights when the mm-hmm. coaches use a lot of scare tactics. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, it, it, it would be great to see another school to have the guts that Northwestern did to stand up and assert their rights because at the end of the day, the players don't have a voice. And the NCAA stepping up and saying, no, we're going to start doing the right things. We know what's best for the players. Well, you've had 115 years to do it. Okay? <laughs> it's or not going to happen. 110 years yeah. to do it. Nothing's yeah. happened. Not going to happen. Okay? And it takes the players to spark this change. I think it's going to come from the players, and it's going to work up from that point. Okay. And at what point, hopefully it doesn't take something catastrophic. Mm. Let's hope not. What, who else wants to take this ball well, and run with it? I would agree with Bob that you may see some incremental change on each of these three, but it's far easier to do a Bill of Rights because mm-hmm. you still got to enforce it, what's included in it. Um, and, and that's the kind of uh, pacifier that I see the NCAA and various universities being willing to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll give you a, a Bill of Rights. But, you know, how does it translate into a real education? How does it translate into better health care and protection um, and, and all of those? So uh, if I had to pick which one would come first, that would be it. Okay, Natalie, the ball's in your court. Uh, I would go with um, new helmets because the NFL is making some shifts mm-hmm. um, as it relates to concussions. And so I see that kind of trickling down on the college level. Um, so I, I would kind of go with that, the helmets and tackle, no tackle practices. I think if you look at what happened at the NFL level, though, that started with the players' it union. It did. The players' you know, union is why they have low contact or no contact practices. They were able to fight for those reforms. Right. And, and the NFL, up until a week ago, has denied any connection between football and CTE. They were essentially, yeah, you know, it have. was... Um, reminiscent of the smoking industry in the early 90s where they all wanted to say there is no correlation between (laughs) and it's like no there obviously is it really is it really really is we've known about you know punch drunk or dementia pugilistica for a long time and drawing those correlations i don't know if a helmet's going to solve i think a helmet's going to solve it wait till you all hear tomorrow from our purdue engineers and they will tell you about their new helmet technology that, of course, the NCAA doesn't want to touch, the NFL doesn't want to touch, and Rydell doesn't want to touch. But they have a new helmet design based on the car industry that absorbs impact. And they believe that this could make helmets much more effective against the effects of repeated impact. Our helmets today are basically there to prevent a catastrophic injury. They're there to prevent a skull fracture. They're not there. They're not built to absorb impact. These engineers have designed a helmet that does. And so we're going to talk about this some tomorrow. It's pretty exciting at the same time that it's pretty nauseating because no one is picking it up and running with it, mostly because of liability issues. If they say this helmet's better and they replace all the helmets they've had, then they're admitting liability for less subpar helmets that they have been you know, marketing for years and years. I mean, some people have advocated the idea of no helmets. Because rugby. when you look at the <laughs> rugby, rugby has a certain amount of concussions. They have a lot lower concussions because right. there's you this false sense your head. of safety right. that you do. You're running... You know, I had a rugby guy that said, oh, you Americans, you have pads. I'm like, when are you going to run full speed 
head on into another person that's 30 feet away from you that's running full speed at you. It'll never happen. Well, you don't have to in rugby because you've oh, got yeah. just lateral passes it's and all everybody's side touching tackling it. Yeah. And you would die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah. It's common and sense. Rugby, too. Rugby's built around a, a kind of more nimble way of handling the ball and. You don't have right. the line of scrimmage. You know, it's right. different. We know yeah. these things because our son plays rugby. Yeah, was, right. So, well, let's let's um, finish up here. This has been a great conversation. Obviously, we could go on and on and on. But to kind of wrap it up, you have one shot, okay? And this means it has to be a short answer because we're talking about a young person with a limited attention span <laughs> you can give one piece of advice to a current athlete okay number one what level athlete would you choose to give this advice to and they're going to listen that's part of the, the part of the question they're going to listen what level would you start with and what would be your piece of advice let's start with you natalie okay if they would listen they're going to listen they're going to listen <laughs> um college level Preparing for life after sports, which means um, finding a profession and making those contacts and um, doing the things that you need to do to be successful mm -hmm. um, in that particular field that you choose, mm -hmm. which that doesn't happen yeah. uh, enough on the Amen. college level. So yes. that would be my advice. Good advice. Good advice. Bob DeMars. Uh, I would speak to the college athlete as well, and I would remind them that they have the power. Um, they have a voice, and there's a lot more things that they can do. A lot of them um, feel disenfranchised, and they have a voice, and they can speak, and they can use it. And definitely, you know, harken on what Natalie said, I mean, find your passion in life um, off the field because you will not go pro, and you will not have a career, and even if you do have a sustainability career, it won't last long enough. And you need to discover another passion, even if it's in coaching, mm -hmm. in another form on the field. You still need to be an educator. If you're going to be a coach, you need to find those different tools and those different abilities. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay, Bob Orr, piece of advice. I have watched too many presidential debates this year. <laughs> so you have asked me <laughs> a question. One too many. <laughs> you have asked me a question, and I'm going to answer a different question. Uh, and But my concern is how our society has completely blown sports out of proportion. Mm. We've talked about football and basketball, but on the college campuses, literally high school, youth sports, huge amounts of time are being invested in sports, uh, whether it's golf, volleyball, whatever. I mean, we've got to put sports in a better balance with education mm -hmm. with uh, the ability to you know to work together to solve problems uh, and, and so I would want to tell any athlete any parent leaders we have got to bring a balance mm -hmm. back to mm -hmm. our society uh, when it comes to our emphasis on mm -hmm. sports I hear you what what great points and what a great discussion. I can't thank all of you enough for joining us. Natalie Graves, thank you for coming down from Chicago. Thank Bob you for DeMar having me. You bet. Bob DeMars, thank you for coming all the way from L.A., California. My pleasure. And uh, Bob Orr, thank you for coming up from North Carolina to join us. My pleasure.
Marsha, I think one of the takeaways that I really got in this kind of came just towards the end there when we're talking about how things are out of balance. One thing that's just ringing in my head is what Bob DeMar said. Capitalism is very American. That's what America is all about. And that these young men can't benefit from their name, image. Young people can't benefit from name, image, and likeness. One thing that I just took away is the out-of-whack balance that Bob was talking about and Natalie were talking about right there. And then Bob's comments of capitalism is American as American can get. Yeah, I mean, I have similar similar takeaways, and I think for my for me, it's just really the the blessing of open conversation, mm-hmm. and how we all need to to go from this place and keep keep having those conversations, and we are going to keep going deep here. We have some exciting shows in the lineup on pressing issues like due process, the NCAA. We're looking forward to having guests like Joe Nacera from the New York Times, an author of the new book Indentured. And Sonny Vaccaro, a name that many people know in the sports reform movement, an outspoken advocate for players' rights, and former University of North Carolina fullback Devin Ramsey. Special thanks to WBAA, our public radio station here in West Lafayette. And a big shout-out to our sound engineer, Eric Erica Yone. Thank you, Erica, for all your good work. And remember, you can follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can find us on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep and at ShoopsGoingDeep.com. And most of all, we thank our growing audience of listeners. We're most grateful that you've decided to go deep. We're Team Shoop. We'll hope you'll join us next time on Going Deep. <laughs>